Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, today we are going to talk about hopes, dreams, and potential. All parents have them for their kids, but some kids start their lives with some disadvantages and need some real help to get to those dreams and potential. We have with us today Mary Kirchhoff and Michelle Stiller-Bradley from Wonderland Child and Family Services. Wonderland Child and Family Services has been providing early intervention services to children with developmental delays and disabilities in one form or another for 50 years now. Mary and Michelle, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Uh, Mary, you are the executive director there at Wonderland, right? And Michelle, you're the director on, of programs and services at Wonderland, right? Yeah. Yep. So we've got a couple perspectives and we've got a lot of things to talk about. You guys do a lot of things. And like I said, Wonderland, I don't know, 50 years. Uh, can you give us a little background, Mary, in one form or another? You guys have kind of changed names, but done a lot of things for a long time. We sure have. Wonderland uh, started uh, actually 50 years ago, 1969. In Ballard, it was a group of uh, ladies in a neighborhood who wanted to help one specific child in their neighborhood, and there just weren't a lot of services like Wonderland provides at that time, or they were too far away for the family. So they got together with their ladies group, and um, uh, sort of like that that vision that we always see of the, the decision to break away from Britain in uh, 1776, the group decided to uh, in a late-night vote, form Wonderland, and the rest is history, uh, but packed with uh, many changes and um, helping thousands of children along the way. This year, actually in June, marks our 50th year, so it's been a pretty exciting and action-packed year. And so as we continue also with sort of the basics, you're a, you're a nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. Um no, you're not a state agency. You're not part of any hospital or any school district that serves kids like this that have disabilities and delays. And and right there, let me start that. So as we define that word for the listeners, um, developmental delays, disabilities, what does that mean? I mean, what development, what disabilities sort of to help people figure out what we're talking about? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Michelle uh, address the specific, specifics of that. But I, I um, our status is a little... Um, a little known, and in that we contract with school districts and uh, counties, specifically Snohomish County and King County, to effectively be their contractors, providing this work for kids under the age of three. So we we represent the school districts uh, and and do the work that most school districts don't do for kids under age three. Oh, that they can't, they don't have the capacity. They don't yet, have the uh, capacity, and they don't. Uh, invest in that infrastructure. There are other organizations like ours that provide those services for kids under age three, mm-hmm. and we work closely with school districts. We, we in fact, contract with five school districts. Excellent. Um, and North King and South Snohomish County. Specific to disabilities mm-hmm. and the kind of work, the specifics of the work we do, Michelle is great at addressing that. Sure. So we have two core programs. We have early intervention, and then we have Hope Rising Clinic for prenatal substance exposure. And they both serve populations of of children with disabilities, but in a little bit of a different way. Early intervention, um, we have a wide range of disabilities and medical conditions in the kids that we see. Uh, Some children are coming to us with just a very minor articulation delay. They're just not able to say certain letters at the level uh, that we would expect them to. And others come to us very medically fragile, straight out of the NICU. And uh, they have feeding tubes. They have a lot of medical appointments. 
So our staff get to serve a wide variety of children, which is always very interesting. And those are kids from birth to three that are served in our early intervention program. To be eligible, they have to have a delay of at least 25% in one or more of the developmental areas. So that's how they qualify for our services. And then we provide services to families regardless of their ability to pay. And these, um, I don't know, assessments mm-hmm. of are like noticed by a doctor, a pediatrician who says your kid isn't growing um, physically, like you said, the yeah. speech one, he should be able to pronounce something by now, or is it self-diagnosis and some of the, my kid's not right, and I don't know. How do you, how do you get these kids? It's a how do wide they come range. To you? For the most part, for the birth to three population, it tends to be uh, referrals from pediatricians and medical providers uh, because parents don't really know what they're looking for yet. Often it's they have they have either multiple young children or that's their first child, and they don't really know how their child compares to other typically developing peers. Right. So they can be going along thinking everything's going great, and then they go to the two-year doctor appointment, the well-child check, and at medical offices now they're doing, uh, more often they're doing assessments like the ages and stages questionnaire where they're really looking at all areas of a child's development. And if there are any indicators of a potential delay, those offices are making referrals to early intervention programs such as ours for us to do a more, more thorough evaluation. And what kind of staff do you have then? This So evaluation mm-hmm. is a big deal. And as you said, early intervention, that's what it's all about. So yeah. these have to be specialists, right? Who do you have on staff? Yes. Yeah, so our staff consists of speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, mental health providers, special educators, family resources coordinators. Uh, and we all work, we very much work together on all of the cases so that even if a child is being seen just for... Um, maybe by an occupational therapist, all of the different disciplines are aware of the child and really helping support that occupational therapist and making sure that other areas of development for that child aren't falling behind or aren't something we should be aware of and providing services for. Ah, So let let me expand this then. The occupational therapy, speech therapy we mentioned, physical therapy is another thing. All these things phrases we hear. Can you just can you define that a little bit for someone who's like, well, I've never known anybody that's mm-hmm. had to have OT, occupational therapy. Right. What, what is that that someone learns there? Is that like fine motor skills or something? Or, or is that physical therapy? I guess I'm not sure. Yeah. And it's, it is tricky to define yeah. pe- physical therapy versus occupational therapy. There is some overlap. Uh, occupational therapy really focuses on adaptive skills and really helping a child function to their best ability even given some of the limitations they might have. So maybe just getting out of bed, getting into bed, would be a therapy to teach a, ch- a person, even adults exactly. need this once in a while, right? How to get around, do th- everyday things, physical things? Right, and that's fine motor and gross motor skills. So the big movements and the small movements, like handwriting or picking up small objects, they look at that. So they focus on motor skills, they focus on daily functioning and adaptive skills, Uh, They often work with children who have feeding issues and sensory processing differences. So it's very broad what occupational therapists work on. So if a child gets to kindergarten, let's say, without having been diagnosed with any of these problems Mm -hmm. and a teacher can say, well, I can't help this kid because they still don't know how to pick up a glue stick yet Mm -hmm. and hold it, or um, at lunchtime they're just sitting there barely (laughs) feeding themselves and this is uh, what could have been done in early intervention. Right, 
Exactly. Our goal is really to catch these kids up with their typically developing peers as much as possible. And physical therapy is more like if they have physical problems, limitations with range of motion or something like that? Or is it it beyond that too? That, for the most part, that's uh, what physical therapy treats. They look at uh, foot positioning and they look at um, torticollis, which is when the neck is leaning toward a certain way or there's a strong preference in that Mm -hmm. direction for a child. They help develop those muscles to be able to have full range of motion. Uh, So, yeah, they work with children with um, very specific disabilities that are related to their movement and their motion. And, you know, I don't know, if a kid has you know, one of these problems needs braces on Mm -hmm. their legs or hips, you know, or can't speak well, has big fat glasses to help an eye problem. Does 21st century still stigmatize these kids and their families and treat them differently? I mean, is this something Wonderland does help as well? Do you advocate for changes in society along with one individual child at a time? We do, and a lot of families feel the stigma and the shame, uh, and some of it is cultural. They, we work with a lot of families from different countries who are recent immigrants here, and there are different perspectives about disability in different countries. And so our staff, we really are the first people that are working with families on understanding what their child's challenges are, but also accepting them so that we, we advocate for the kids and the families while they're in services with us, but our goal is to pass the baton to the parents and caregivers so that they can then advocate for their child. I think that's what's so incredibly wonderful about early intervention services as they're delivered in our in our counties and in our state in that the the work is the uses the coaching model in the natural learning environment. Previously, when it was largely a clinic-based approach to helping kids, children were dropped off. The parents might stay and talk to other parents, or they might go out for coffee or whatever. But we work in the natural learning environment with the children and their families because those caregivers and parents are with them all the time. If we can impart that information to the parents and caregivers, our work is 24 hours a day. So much the, the, the... our anecdotal uh, response and, and the literature supports how much more powerful working in the natural learning environment with the whole family yeah. is with these kids. So the parents, the families, they're learning right along with these exactly. new, new role for them. Exactly. Not ju- First off, <laughs> every parent, there's no book written that says, it, just do it A, B, and C, and it worked perfect. Uh, and then when you have a kid with special needs, they have to learn a whole bunch of new things, don't they? Uh, one of the other things you guys do, early intervention, you mentioned uh, Hope Rising Clinic earlier, mm-hmm. and this is uh, for substance abuse prenatal, right? Uh, what we used to call fetal alcohol syndrome or something a while ago. Uh, it gets diagnosed and treated a little more different these days, right? Fetal alcohol spectrum disorder really mm-hmm. is a better term, isn't it? Uh, and a new clinic, relatively, right? Hope Rising. Tell us about that, too. Sure. You want me to yeah, take jump this right in and fill yeah. in yeah. where you need to? <laughs> Should we be drawing numbers here? <laughs> <laughs> we both have so much to say about yeah. this. Uh, yeah, so Hope Rising Clinic serves children with any type of prenatal substance exposure. So fetal alcohol spectrum disorders are one disability that we serve at the clinic, but we are seeing a lot of children with other exposures, uh, methamphetamines, opiates. Uh, as we all know, that's been... Um, We've been our society's been hit really hard by this the opioid is really crisis, growing exponentially too, isn't it? Absolutely, and uh, so we th- for to be eligible for services with us is just any exposure. 
to uh, prenatally to substances. So we have two parts to Hope Rising Clinic. One is the Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders Diagnostic Clinic, and we just offer that once a month, uh, two full evaluations uh, for children who have had confirmed prenatal alcohol exposure. And we're able to have them, to give them support, resources, but also they leave with an actual diagnosis that can be really helpful for them in um, getting supports through the school and through the community down the road. And then we have a program called Boundless, which is also part of Hope Rising Clinic. And that includes our therapeutic supports and services for uh, children with any prenatal exposure to substances. And that might be, a, like you said, a whole spectrum of uh, a variety of therapies, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a group, the whole team joins together and says, oh, I found, according to the diagnosis, mm-hmm. your child can benefit from this, this, and this. Exactly. But not this or not mm-hmm. that. And we partner with the families, too. We really took what we do well in early intervention, and we've applied a lot of those same strategies at Hope Rising Clinic. And one is the notion that we partner with families so that it isn't, it's not our professionals telling a family what they should do and what services they should participate in. These are conversations where the family's very much part of the uh, service plan and deciding what fits for them. What are they most concerned about for their child? It's not about what we're concerned about as much as it is what are the family's primary concerns? What are they feeling they need support with? And what can they manage with their day-to-day lives? Well, that's perfect. It puts them in the team of what we're doing for my right. child, not handing them over. Like you said, that's that's awesome. Um, so how do, I guess, to back up for people too, how does this manifest? Once uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder has been diagnosed, it mm-hmm. must manifest it way, itself in a lot of different ways. But I'm also guessing that it can be misdiagnosed and just skipped over altogether if we don't know anything about it, either a, a pediatrician or a parent or a preschool mm-hmm. attendance. I mean, how, what... <laughs> I don't know what question to ask, what I've set up. But, but it's a pretty complicated landscape. Yeah, and I mean, it's, and it's um, not as well known in our area, uh, uh, the supports that are available, which is why we started yeah. the clinic. So I'm guessing, uh, depending on the exposure prenatally, it could really run the gamut of some really interesting to... study. Exactly. There's some really interesting studies uh, that I love to quote, but I'll let Michelle give uh, more detail about how exposure. We, when we when we go to talk to groups, uh, we we meet a we encounter a range of uh, reactions to the discussion of how much exposure prenatally is a problem. Is one drink a problem uh, prenatally? There's no answer that we there's no one specific answer that we can give to make people think anything is okay. Yeah. What the research is supporting is that timing has a lot to do with it. Um, the the. Uh, the substance has a lot to do with it. Uh, interestingly and surprisingly, alcohol prenatally seems to have longer-term effects even than uh, opi- uh, opioids or other uh, substances. Um, and how it can manifest in one child versus another is very different. There's a study that I think the UW did recently with twins, both exposed prenatally together. One had significant problems. The other one has no no long-lasting wow. issues. So th- it's a complicated topic. And ultimately, where we land is no amount of exposure to substances prenatally is safe. And, and do these um, manifestations 
last their whole life? Can we teach and, and learn <laughs> and rewire the brain? You know, the, the brain is a crazy thing. And as we learn how it, neurons fire and people like after strokes learn different ways that their brain can take paths and right. do things and learn things. What do we know about uh, treatment and therapy for FASD? For FASD, it is a lifelong disability. We need to think of it like a traumatic brain injury. It happens prenatally. There are parts of their brain that may never be able to fully develop and function. What we can do is really um, teach them skills and strategies to help manage the signs and symptoms of FASD. So um, an example is self-regulation is mm -hmm. really, really challenging for kids who have had prenatal substance exposure. Uh, they have a lot of difficulty regulating their moods, and so they can go from you know, zero to 160 in a matter of seconds if something makes them angry. Uh, and so working with these kids, there are different strategies and techniques and programs uh, that are evidence-based uh, as far as working with these kids so that they start to recognize when they're starting to boil over and working with parents and caregivers at recognizing those warning signs to help prevent some of those behaviors and challenges from occurring. Wow. Yeah, so the parents and family are just as incorporated into this as anyone yes. else, aren't they? Yes. We are talking with Mary Kirchhoff and Michelle Stiller-Bradley from Wonderland Child and Family Services today. Wonderland Child and Family Services, they, it sounds like they provide assessment, diagnosis, and treatment prenatal exposure to any substance, it sounds like. So we haven't right. given this out online. There's a lot more than we're going to cover today, right? Wonderlandkids.org, right, is the basic wonderlandkids.org. You got it. And Hope Rising Clinic has its own mm -hmm. website as well, right? Mm -hmm. Hoperisingclinic.org. Just mm -hmm. all spelled out. That's easy, mm -hmm. isn't it? Easy. <laughs> you guys serve, um, like you said, South Snohomish County, North King County, but this is not limited to who needs you. Are there others doing exactly what you do around the state? Or, I mean, people come to you from a, around the state, don't they? Uh, actually, we've received calls uh, as we've rolled out the clinic. We've re received calls nationally. What we're doing with our clinic is, we believe, unique in the nation in that all of these services are in one place. Uh, the diagnostic clinic, uh, Michelle can go into more detail about our partnership with the UW fetal alcohol syndrome diagnostic clinic and the work that we've done with them. But the, uh, the boundless program and those subsequent supports after diagnosis and assessment that we provide to kids through age 12 and their families is unique. It's, it's one-stop shopping for families. In, uh, to the best of our knowledge, elsewhere in the country, um, the services are available, but they're Spread out. The families have to go find a speech language pathologist that specializes in this, uh -huh. or an occupational therapist mm -hmm. who specializes in this. Uh, we have them all in one place. Um, <laughs> touchy question. I don't know. Is this covered by most people's insurance? I mean, beyond the physical, emotional, and mental burden of caring for a child with special needs, then there, does it have to be a financial burden too? Did you say something before you? take anyone? We do. So that is another part of our early intervention program that is just fundamental to who we are, that we accept families regardless of their ability to pay or wow. their insurance coverage. And so we've extended that to Hope Rising Clinic as well. Uh, a lot of the families have Medicaid or other public insurance, and uh, the kids qualify because they do have challenges. That's why they're coming to see us. And so their insurance generally does cover the cost of many of our services. But if the insurance doesn't, then we work with the family around a, a payment plan that is manageable. 
And and um, this is actually the clinic is something we've been looking at and trying as an organization to uh, find that that area of service that we felt was not being met anywhere in our community. And it was challenging to figure out a sustainable business model to make it work. It was when we put both fetal alcohol syndrome uh, exposure and uh, exposure to all substances together right. and uh, connected that to a really strong grant program. The truth is the, the clinic and uh, the work with the clinic is not supported. As I was saying earlier, we, we, we work with our school district partners. That's our early intervention work. We don't receive that funding for the clinic. So uh, we have a really robust grant program. We have some great uh, uh, local grantors, uh, grantor partners, Verdant Health Commission, Primera, a number of uh, large organizations regionally have helped us make the clinic possible because the funding is a very different model for us. Uh, in fact, we have a fundraiser this weekend. So our grant program, our fundraising program are uh, in full swing to support this work because it's just a different and tougher business model than our early intervention work. And so if there aren't enough you know, people doing what you do, you, if school districts need you for that inter- early intervention, I mean, what, are there long-term plans and goals? And then not just for... Hope Rising Clinic and Wonderland Kids, but for society, do we have to realize, hey, people, um, we need to help infants up to three before kindergarten. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> I know that's well, like an open philosophical well, we question. Think, well, where are we you think going? the answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, that's why we come to work every day uh, and why we're so passionate about the work that we do. One of the things that, that I love about uh, adding the clinic to our toolkit is it helps us take that service model that is so successful with kids and families to age three, but there's sort of that valley after they work with us before school starts. With the clinic going through age 12, we're able to help that transition and those supports for families far longer than the early intervention system allows us to, to provide those services. Wonderland didn't create early intervention work. There are other providers in our community. It's a, it's a federally funded and state-monitored program that has rules that we all follow. And we have you know wonderful peers that we work with in the community, including school districts. But there is that time between early intervention and school when school starts where families can feel a little uh, less supported than the, than the envelope we wrap them in in early intervention. And the clinic allows us to provide that uh, to families for a much longer period of time and help them advocate at the school level. And just to add to that, uh, a lot of the kids who have had prenatal substance exposure, they aren't exhibiting severe enough symptoms and challenges at the time they exit early intervention at age three for them to qualify for school district services. Right. It often manifests later in Uh, childhood, not in those first three years. And so there is a huge gap between three and six when they go to the school system. And that is often when the families are dealing with the the ramifications of the prenatal exposure. Kids who can't pay attention long enough, kids who can't get along with other kids. It looks like a behavior problem, but it's got these roots in uh, prenatal substance exposure. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's another thing that's exciting about this work and why while I'm so excited to, to feel like we're kind of pioneers in our area, uh, 
we've had conversations with school district partners when we've talked about the ways that prenatal substance exposure can manifest in kids. Kind of a light bulb has gone off for some of the special education directors who've said, you know, I wonder if some of our kids who have been diagnosed with autism are actually misdiagnosed yeah. because the symptoms can be similar, I'll bet. but the tools to help support the kids and the families can be very different. Yeah, because that autism spectrum has grown and grown, and they've diagnosed in that and a very lot differently of, over exactly, the last 20 years. Exactly. Yeah, Michelle, yeah. you want to talk about that a little bit? Hey, you know, before I, before I let you, I have <laughs> to say we're going to run out of time. Okay. So if, if we, did, <laughs> you know, I want to make sure we haven't skipped anything really important about Wonderland Child and Family Services or Hope Rising Clinic um, but, yeah, what do you think people want to hear most or you need to tell them most or maybe something we need to say again? Well, there is one thing that I want to speak to, Gary. You mentioned just having the service available here and that it's obviously much more of a global problem. Yeah. So one of the things we're hoping to do is uh, we actually have some funding from a, a, um, a family trust fund that donated this to us for us to create a technical manual about our program, the development of it, and the outcomes so that this pro- this model can be replicated elsewhere. Right now, we have families from Spokane, Blaine, uh, Bellingham, uh, Oregon. We have a family who just contacted us last week that's from the States, but they're in Japan, and they want to come back. And when they're in town, they want to come in for an evaluation with our clinic. So we don't want to be the only clinic providing these supports and services. We want every community to have this, and we want to really work to, to help make that happen. Yeah, it's just got to spread the, right. the work you're doing. It's needed everywhere. Yeah. Mary, anything else you want to tell people about Wonderland before we finish up here? Well, I, I'm just so proud of the work that our therapists do, actually our whole staff. We, we just have such a level of commitment to serving these children and families. Uh, it's an honor to be a part of that. and. We're lucky to be able to do what we do. Thank yeah. you for giving us the time to share that. Oh, absolutely. We we have been talking today with Director of Programs and Services, Michelle Stiller-Bradley, and Mary Kirchhoff. She is the Executive Director at Wonderland Child and Family Services. People can learn more, again, online. The web is a great thing. Wonderlandkids.org and hoperisingclinic.org. Mary and Michelle, gosh, thanks so much for coming in today. And a bigger thanks for what Wonderland Child and Family Services is doing on behalf of families with children for children that have developmental delays in Washington uh, for 50 years now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to hear this interview again, it will be available within a few days on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Just search Spotlight with Gary Scheip. I am Gary Scheip. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.